To all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here. A great example to our children is to show them the love of Christ. And one father had four rambunctious, excited, hyperactive boys, four of them. And every Sunday in church, he had a very hard time keeping them quiet, and they didn't have a nursery. And there was one Sunday that he was trying to keep them quiet, and all of a sudden, they were dead silent, and they were fixed on what the preacher was saying about turning the other cheek. They gave their undivided attention when the preacher said, no matter what others do to us, we should never try to get even. A few days later during the week, the evening, they're out playing. One of the younger boys comes running in the house, crying, sobbing, in pain. And the dad says, boy, what happened to you? And the son says, I kicked my brother, and he kicked me back. And the father says, well, I'm sorry you're hurt, but you shouldn't go around kicking other people, especially your brother. And the little boy says, but the preacher said he's not supposed to kick back. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of reveals a little issue that we have going on in our world today. And the problem is the, the lack of authentic followers of Christ really living out his word in the world. Because Father Ben, uh, last Sunday, I believe, said that we know justice as a person. And that person is Jesus. And the world knows Jesus, or they will not know Jesus, by what we do. They'll either know him or they won't by us. Because we're his hands and his feet. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Do they know Jesus by us or do they not? Another dad story, as it is Father's Day. I'm going to keep it going. (laughs) The little guy coming down the stairs, stomping his feet as loud as he could, saying, I don't need no church. I don't need no stinking Sunday school. I would rather be playing outside, going fishing, or even sitting in a mud hole rather than going to church. And the mother said, son, you, you know, you need to go to church. You can't be like that. The little guy looks at his dad, trying to find some sense of affirmation, and says, dad, did you go to church when you were my age? The dad says, well, son, I went every Sunday with my parents. And the little boy said the most revealing remark. He looked at his mom and he said, you see, it didn't do him any good either. (laughs) They'll either know Jesus or not by us. One theologian that has influenced my thought life, challenged me, convicted me, and slapped me a few times as I have read his writings, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said this, listen very carefully. The Christian life is a participation in the encounter of Christ with the world. The Christian life is a participation in the encounter of Christ with the world. And the hot topic today uh, in our society is justice. 
Justice can only flow from the one who made justice, and that is Jesus. And it flows through our actions as we participate in Christ's encounter with the world. It flows from that old hymn, as the old hymn says, the old rugged cross. His blood made perfect justice for us. And in the world, we are the light of that justice. We're the the, the epitome of that love, that giving, that sacrifice. And I, I was remembering this, this writing that I read a long time ago, and I'm glad that God can bring things to my remembrance because there's one thing I'm good at, and that's forgetting. I am very good at that. I don't need any help forgetting. If you look at my desk at work in the rescue mission, I have a calendar, and there's notes all over that calendar because if it's not there where I can see it every day, I'll forget And I remembered, God brought to my remembrance this letter uh, from the early church that we read when I was still in seminary at St. Michael's in the Philippines. And it is a letter to Diognetius, written from, they think, a guy named Matthias. And in this letter, he describes this effect of our participation of Christ encountering the world. It's a lengthy quote. I don't usually do that, but, you know, it's Father's Day. I can do what I want. (laughs) The one day a year, I can do what I want. (laughs) So here it is. Listen very carefully, please. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon revelries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor all under the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children. They do not expose them. They share their meals, but they do not share their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death but raised to life again. They live in poverty but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess the abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens, They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. Christians love those who hate them. 
just as the soul loves the body and all its members, despite the body's hatred. Listen very carefully to the next sentence. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. In the same way, it is by Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place, and Christians also live for a time amid perishable things, awaiting the freedom from the change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the lofty and divinely appointed function of every Christian from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. Our effect, the whole world held together. And today Jesus gives us what the church has always called the little commission. Little in the sense that it's only one sentence, but enormous in the sense of its scope. And that commission, much like what this letter said, is this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. As I told in the first service, if I was writing that, it would have been written a little bit like this. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I would walk around with my hand in my pocket and I would always say, hey, buddy, I've got something right here for you. It's in my pocket. You want it right now? We would beat the evil out of the people. But Jesus said, no, that's not the way. He gives us this commission. What does this commission entail? First of all, it is a preeminent vocation. I know that's big words. That's big words for me. It's a good thing there's a dictionary. I looked them up. They came to me, and, you know, sometimes the Lord will drop words in my spirit, and I actually do have to go look them up. But this one I knew. But preeminent means surpassing all others. And vocation sometimes gets confused with occupation. You never really ask people, well, what's your vocation? But it's something a little bit like this. Let's pretend for a minute we all decide to enlist in the United States Marine Corps because they have the best dress uniforms, that's why. So we're going to all join the Marines. What happens? Every single one of us in this room would be a Marine. We all are Marines. We're going to live by the Marine Code of Conduct. But within the Marine Corps, we all have assigned occupations. Vocationally, we're Marines. Occupationally, I would be in the chow hall or chaplaincy if they would let me. If you could bribe them, they might let me in. But it's like that when we come to the, to the Lord. When we're baptized, whether you knew it or not, you became an enlisted soldier in the Lord's army. Your vocation becomes that vocation of all Christians everywhere throughout all the centuries to know God and to make him known. But you all have different occupations. If we were all doctors, who would be frying our hamburgers? 
We all have different occupations, jobs, or professions, but it is in our occupations that our vocation is realized. And if you ever wondered what I often wonder about um, on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, why I'm in the job I'm in, I say, God, why am I here? Anybody ever ask that? Why am I in this job? Well, I'm going to tell you the answer. So you can live out your vocation. God has you where you are because somebody needs to see Jesus. So don't look at the job. Don't look at your occupation. Emphasize your vocation. Because our life, as Bonhoeffer said, is a participation in the encounter with Christ, of Christ with the world. How are they going to encounter Christ? We've got to be in the world. We've got to be good hamburger flippers. We've got to be good doctors and lawyers. But don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. <laughs> Sorry. Again, my mind thinks musically. So there's that preeminent vocation that surpasses all others. And the second what of this commission, Jesus lets us know right off the bat, I'm sending you among wolves. There's going to be imminent danger, imminent peril. It's not going to be easy street. You're not going to be walking on cloud nine. You're not going to be on the yellow brick road. It's going to be hard. The wolf does not sympathize with the sheep. And it's always been that way. You open the first pages of the Bible, there's been animosity between truth and that which was not truth. Because if you haven't noticed, when you tell someone the truth, they embrace you and hug your neck and say thank you. No. They get upset. Because there's something in our fallen nature we don't like to admit we're wrong. But we are. So there's always going to be this animosity. Abel had Cain. Noah had the rest of the world. Isaac had Ishmael. Jacob had Esau. David had Saul. So on and so on and so on. Wolves always want to do one thing. Devour. Consume. And occasionally howl at the moon. But there's going to be danger. Jesus announces that to us from the get-go. So don't be surprised when you're being beaten and flogged and your family members are against you, Jesus said. Don't be surprised. It's part of the plan. All because he's given us the third what of this commission. And that is imminent authority. Jesus said, behold, I am sending you. Now, if you're like me, I had to look around and make sure there wasn't somebody standing behind me because there's no way Jesus was talking to me. But he does. He did. All of us in this room, behold, I am sending you. John would later write in the, the fourth chapter of his first epistle, as he is, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. As he is, so are we in this world. What is that? What was Jesus? He was the agent and the expression and the fulfillment of divine love, of service and sacrifice. That's the love of Christ, service and sacrifice. 
considering the other as more important than himself, facilitating the success and well-being of the other person. The authority that we have is the authority to love as Jesus loves. Well, Brother Shane, that's pretty hard. Well, Jesus said it was going to be hard. But that's what we're here for. Because there's only one thing that will fix the world, and that is the invasion of divine love. Two friends of mine from Liverpool wrote a great song that explains it all. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, 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 love. They said it multiple times. <laughs> so all you need is love. All you need is love. And I tell you today, if you want to see anything change in your world, all you need is love. Well, no, 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 no. That's all you need. You have to live that out. You have to be the living, breathing, tangible expression of the love that held Jesus to the cross. That's the authority we have, not the authority to hand out knuckle sandwiches but to love. So how does this commission live out in our lives? How does it look? How are we going to do this? Well, fortunately, Jesus gives three examples from the animal kingdom, not the three I would have chosen. Sheep, serpents, and doves. I would have chosen more along the lines of the Wizard of Oz, lions, tigers, and bears. Growl like a bear, pounce like a lion. But that's not what Jesus chose. And he chose these for very specific reasons, and he knew what he was doing. Thanks be to God. The first one, I'm sending you out as sheep. We all know sheep. That's the most familiar image we have. The great Good Shepherd passage. The Lord's, this is my shepherd, Psalm 23. But what is it about sheep that's so important? The wool, I don't have wool. Lamb chops, that's pretty important. With mint sauce, wow, that's pretty good. Milk, sheep cheese, I don't, what's, what's so important that Jesus would call us sheep? Because they're cute? No, I failed that test. Because sheep, in actual fact, only have one resource. They have no natural defense. If you didn't know, they're not the smartest animal in the barnyard. They have to be shown what to eat, what to drink, where to sleep. And if they get into trouble, they have no way to rescue themselves. They're helpless. They're like a turtle on their back. But they only have one resource, and that is the shepherd. And for us, if we're going to be fulfilling this commission Jesus gives us, we have to realize, just like sheep, we only have one resource, and that is the constant attention of the shepherd. That's the resource we have, and our job is to listen and follow, not overanalyze to it leads us to analysis paralysis and we just freeze up 
and not to expect and imagine the worst, but just to simply listen and follow the only resource we have, the shepherd. When I was still living in the United Kingdom, I invited the Archbishop of the Charismatic Episcopal Church to my house. I didn't realize who he was at that time. Um, I didn't realize he had like over a million people under his care. He was just my friend's father-in-law, a good Southern boy living in Southern California. I don't know why he decided to do that, but he did. So I invited him over for breakfast. And uh, like a good Southern boy, what do you eat for breakfast? Biscuits and gravy. That's like the breast breakfast of champions. So I made him biscuits and gravy. And halfway through the meal, he kind of leans back in his chair. And he was a very spiritual, very animated, very, very funny man. And he, he closed his eyes. And for about 45 seconds, he had his hands on the table going, thank you, Jesus. For 45 seconds, he goes, thank you, Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, that is some great gravy I just made. <laughs> and in the middle of it, he goes, thank you, Jesus. And when he opened his eyes, he looked at me, eyeball to eyeball, and he said, Brother Shane, you don't have any decisions to make, only instructions to follow. That's the life of a sheep. Don't we overcomplicate everything? Well, what about this? 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 I don't really like that. What about this? When all we really have are instructions to follow. What are you listening to? What voice occupies your thoughts? Listen to what Mother Teresa said. We need to find God. And everybody said, that's right. And he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars, the moon and the sun, how they move in silence. The more we receive in silent prayer, the more we can give in our active life. The more we receive in our silent prayer, the more we can give in our active life. We need silence to be able to touch souls. The essential thing is not what we say, but what God says to us and through us. All our words will be useless unless they come from within. Words which do not give the light of Christ increase the darkness. So let's be great listening, following sheep. The second picture he gives us, one we don't normally associate with good. When's the last time you thought about, hey, look at that snake, that's so good. <laughs> now we usually either run or do something a little more violent when we see snakes. Unless you're my dad, he'll go pick it up, but not me. 
Serpents. Why would Jesus use serpents? He says, be wise as serpents or prudent as serpents. And I thought of a few things that snakes were good for. Number one, uh, boots, belts. And if you're in Hong Kong and you feel cold, eat the snake soup. It'll warm you up from the inside out. But that's really not what I meant to say. (laughs) The, (laughs) The good things about snakes. Number one. They get out of the way of man as much as they can. You have to really go hunt for a snake. You have to really go find it. You have to stumble across his house by accident. They're really separating themselves from the ways of man's life. We invade their territory. And what does that tell us? It tells us that we're not to follow the pattern of the world, of the ungodly. Jesus said we're in the world, but not of the world. Big differences. We don't derive our sense of meaning and well-being and thought life from the world. Now, growing up in my home was a very conservative home, especially my grandparents. They were hard-nosed, boy. Hard. Strict. And growing up, when I was about nine or ten, I would go to my grandparents often because I loved hanging out. They had a big yard. I could play and do all kinds of stuff. And I would go tell them... I want to go bowling. Never been bowling. I want to try it out. And I would hear these words. That's worldly. I want to go watch the new Star Wars movie. That's worldly. The movie house is the devil's house. I heard that. I should say I heard that. And all these things I I was interested in, I would hear almost always, it's worldly. And when I was at a certain age, I began to think, well, what is not worldly? We're all in the world. I don't know of any of us that are not living in the world. What's not worldly? And John describes for us very clearly what this worldliness is, what we are to go away from as much as a snake goes away from us. And he described it in three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If I see it, I want it. I feel like I need it. I must have it. And I want everybody to see that I have it. It is appearance and appetite. That's the world system. If you've ever watched any kind of marketing campaigns, it is almost always based on appearance and appetite. The new car. Look how happy the family is with that new car. And it was only $57,000. Look at the new sandwich at at Wendy's. It's huge. It's triple and this and that. and, And you go order it and it looks nothing like the picture. I think you gave me the wrong sandwich. This looks nothing like the picture. It is appearance and appetite. But that's the world. Our world is service and sacrifice. That's us. That's the polar opposite of the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I'll serve you and even I'll sacrifice something of myself so that you can have success. That's Jesus. He laid it aside to save us. 
So we don't follow the world. We get out of the way of the world as much as we can. We serve. We sacrifice. What else about a snake that's wise and prudent? It goes around very quietly. Me and Michael will be playing golf on the golf course, and there'll be a huge noise over in the woods beside us, and you would think Bigfoot's about to march out, and you turn around, and it's a little tiny squirrel. You wonder how in the world that little rodent made all that noise. But when's the last time you ever heard someone say, did you hear that? That's a snake. You never. Unless you're out west and you stumble upon a rattlesnake, you're going to hear that. But you never hear someone hearing a snake. And that lets us know, just go about our business quietly. We don't have to be the star. The spotlight doesn't have to be on you. It has to be on me. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's on Jesus. There's a song that's on the radio now that there's one line in it, something along the lines that Jesus is the only name to remember. You can forget about me, but remember Jesus. That's going around our business quietly. Our life should point to one direction, and that's Jesus. That's what God has done. One writer said this about the prudent serpent. He said, it is unobtrusive earnestness, simple-minded resolution to fulfill our mission. The last good thing about a snake, other than boots and belts and soup, is a serpent can find its way where other creatures cannot. Biology tells us that the serpent's form is adapted to progress among obstacles. And those of you that have been that have been a Christian for more than 24 hours, it's full of obstacles. There's challenges to be faced. There's hurdles to overcome. There's mountains to climb. There's valleys to wade through. But we overcome. We progress through those obstacles. As the letter that I read earlier said, as the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. It is in those moments that the strength of God is most clearly seen in our life. When we have no resource but the shepherd, and we let him work in our lives, and we wonder when we're on the other side, wow, how in the world did we ever get through that? It's called the grace of God. We flourish through persecution. In our church in Manila, the main cathedral, I remember the first time I went there, huge building, uh, like highly polished concrete floors that looked like marble. And every service, they would roll out, roll, blah, 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 roll out this huge, long red carpet. Now, carpet in the Philippines is extremely expensive. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, God, you must think we're pretty important rolling out this red carpet every Sunday. And then I was told what it really means. 
The red carpet leading up to the altar reminds us that the way of the kingdom is paved with the blood of the martyrs. A reminder of those who sacrificed and to remind us that we flourish under persecution. Just like that snake. It'll go through any obstacle even when other animals cannot. So we got sheep who follow prudent serpents and harmless as doves. Harmless as doves. Harmless as doves. Why doves, Lord? Well, the word harmless in Greek literally means without horns. No horns. There's nothing to destroy or retaliate with. Only to beautify and build. And in our walk in this world, if we're going to be a participant in the encounter of Christ with the world, we have to live our life without horns. Not destroying or retaliating. And let me give you a few examples in our work and family life when the horns have come out. Whenever you have thought something like this, who does he think he is? I will not let them get away with that. How can they talk to me like that? I know none of you ever had those thoughts in your brain, but I do. And I struggle to keep the horns from popping out from time to time. But for us, we can never be motivated by reaction. Reactions get us in trouble. We always respond gracefully. I know your first immediate reaction will not be grace. Believe me, it will not be grace. Let somebody say something to you. My hand comes up. But don't let it rule you. We must always be harmless as doves. Not destroying, not retaliating, but looking for ways to beautify and build. If it's a person, if it's a situation, never trying to prove that I'm right or enforce my rights, but always standing for that which is right. Paul wrote to the church and said it this way, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul, how am I going to put salt on my words? Well, he's giving you a word picture. Think about the best meal you've ever had. I can think of a couple. How it left such a pleasant taste in your mouth. How you were disappointed that you got full so fast. How you wish you had room to eat more. Anybody had that experience? Yes. Paul said, our interaction with the world, this little harmless dove, should be like that well-seasoned meal. When people encounter us, they should want to spend more time with us. They should feel bad that the time is over. 
And they should always walk away with a good feeling, not just in their taste buds, but in their mind and in their spirit. I know you have those people that when they call you on the phone and you see their name pop up, you go, oh, no, it's going to be 45 minutes of blah, 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 blah. And all you hear is Charlie Brown's teacher because you're not paying attention. That's the opposite of what this harmless dove is supposed to be. But you also have those people that you long to fellowship with, don't you? That's gracious words seasoned with salt. You want to be with them. You want to hang on every word that they say. You're listening to them. You're gaining and gleaning influence and and insight from them. So let's be harmless as doves. Don't let the horns come out. Seek for ways to let your words be gracious, seasoned with salt, building and beautifying the situation. Because there's no other answer but you. If your situation is ugly, if you're in an ugly circumstance, you are the beautification team. It is you. Don't look around to anybody else. It is you. Because you have received the little great commission. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You are the answer. You have a vocation that surpasses all others. There's going to be trouble, but you know it ahead of time. And God has given you eminent authority to deal with that trouble. And live like a sheep. Listen and follow. Be a serpent, wise and prudent. Be harmless as doves. In closing, I leave with you the words of Charles Spurgeon as he reflected on this verse. Does it come home to you, brothers and sisters? Do you hear the Lord sending you out to work? Then I entreat you, go forth. Suppose I make that one sentence my last word. Go forth. You may have heard of the Scotch officer who had his men drawn up for battle and felt bound to make them a speech, so he pointed to the enemy and said, There they are, lads. If you don't kill them, they'll kill you. My word is the same. There are enemies of all righteousness, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of good men, the enemies of progress. If you do not overthrow them by publishing the gospel at to all according to your ability, they will overthrow you. Which is it to be? By the grace of the eternal and the omnipotence of him who bled for us, we will conquer, even by his cross and after his fashion. Only let the Holy Spirit rest upon us. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.